Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We are working through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're looking at verses 9 to 11 of the first chapter today, which concludes Paul's report on his prayers for his friends there in Philippi. If this was a secular letter of the day, this section of the letter would have been devoted to well-wishing, just kind of, just friendly well-wishes for good health. Paul's taking that custom and he's transforming it into something, something distinctly Christian, not offering wishes for good health, but prayers for spiritual prosperity and advancement in the living out of the gospel. Paul We looked at the beginning of his uh, prayer report last week, and there was two sections that we covered. Verses 3 to 6, we saw the spirit in which he offers his prayers. He mentions a number of aspects that mount to the spirit of his prayer life towards them, that they were frequent, that they were inclusive of everybody, that they were offered thankfully and joyfully and confidently. And then he went on in verses 7 and 8 to the next section to explain why it's perfectly right for him to feel that way about the Philippians. He says, it's only right because I hold you in my heart. And the reason he held them so dear in his heart was because of how they had partaken of God's grace together in trial. They had been given grace to stand for the Lord together. And that's how the best Christian friendships are forged. And so Paul and the Philippians were deep friends. And now, in the last section, he tells us what he actually prayed for. This is the content of his prayers. When we read passages like this, our eyes can kind of glaze over. It just sounds like a bunch of nice spiritual talk. But Paul has chosen his words carefully. He has put his ideas together according to a certain logic. And there is a lot of spiritual gospel wisdom at the heart of his prayers for this people that we have to learn from. We've called this whole series Reaching Forward. That's because progress toward a heavenly goal and the joy that comes from advancing towards that goal is the great theme of this letter. And this prayer introduces us to that theme. Uh, Everything really that he talks about in prayer here, he's going to talk about by way of exhortation and instruction later on in the letter. And there's a lesson in that for us, in that everything that Paul is going to put before the Philippians by way of of exhortation and command, direction, um, he is first putting before his heavenly father on their behalf. Prayer is the great business of our lives. And Paul exemplifies that and models it for the Philippians and for us here. Do you pray? If so, how do you pray? Is it anything like what we see here from the Apostle Paul? We're going to look at this together and see what it has to teach us. This is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is a chain of desires that Paul has linked together to build a picture of really a good summary of all of Christian living and the Christian life with its goals and its requirements. And we're going to look at each link in that chain. There's three of them. And each one of those links has its own compound idea. So it's sort of a dense, complicated, but beautiful prayer. Paul's first desire is found in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The growth and advancement in love. That is the heart of Paul's first desire and the foundation of this whole prayer. Everything else that follows out of this desire for his friends. That they would grow and abound still more and more in love. And a particular type of love. There's a lot of talk about love. I looked it up. I intuitively knew this, but I looked it up on on Google, and Google confirmed that the most mentioned word in songs is love. It's one of the most frequently referenced cultural ideas around us. Love is clearly something we all agree is central to life and very important. We use the word a lot, but do we all mean the same thing when we use that word? There's actually a lot of meanings and a lot of different types of love. English is at a deficiency in this. Greek has a lot of particular words to describe different types of love. Paul has a particular love in mind here that he's wishing and praying for his friends. It's called agape love. Agape love, is, it's not romantic love. It's not brotherly or familiar love. It's not obsessive love. Greek has specific words for all those things. Agape love is like the purest of all loves, the greatest of all loves. It is God himself. It's almost purely an ecclesiastical or biblical word. And it is, it is, God, it is who God is. God is agape, John writes in his letter. Agape is the love that flows from God toward us. Agape is from God, John also writes in 1 John. Agape love is the kind of love we are to live out and exhibit towards God and others as grateful recipients of agape love shown to us by God. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, walk in love. Walk in love, just as Christ also agape loved us and gave himself up for us. One commentator's definition of agape love was this, it's it places a high value on another, and it expresses itself in actively seeking the benefit of the one so loved. It's more than a feeling. It's a behavior. It is acting towards others according to certain uh, definitions or rules or parameters as defined by somebody. Who? Who gets to define it? Agape love is defined not by our imagination or our culture. It's defined by the one from whom it emanates. The origin and the source of agape love, God himself. It is prescribed, it defined by him and his law, his word. That's what Paul is praying that his friends in Philippi would abound more and more in. This, perf- perfect, this perfect 
God-originating love, self-sacrificing love towards others. And that's one of the greatest things ever to be prayed for. If you want to be prayed for something really great and truly important, pray for those that you love and ask for prayers to grow and abound in love. Agape, love, this type of love, is the first fruit of the Spirit of God. The first and greatest fruit of God's Spirit. It's mentioned first in that wonderful list of fruits of the Spirit. It's the summation of the entire law of God. If you boil the law of God down to its most basic essence, it is this. Love, agape the, lo- the, the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and agape your neighbor as yourself. Upon this hangs the whole law and the prophets, says Jesus in Matthew 22. Agape love is the goal of all biblical instruction. It's the, it's the point of me being up here of what I want to see and should want to see happen out there and in my own life as I say these things. Listen to this. Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, in chapter 1, verse 5, and he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That is the goal of all of our biblical teaching and instruction. And it's the greatest and the most enduring of all Christian virtues. Paul, in his wonderful chapter devoted to love, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, says at the end, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul wants his friends, his Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi, to abound in this kind of perfect love and to excel in it and to grow in it to overflowing, to have a superabundance of this love in their life. But not this love alone. In order for agape love to know how to express itself in a helpful way, (laughs) to know how to accomplish its aims, it needs some other qualities to grow up alongside it, to help it and give it direction. Paul acknowledges that here in this prayer. He says, I want you to abound still more and more in this love, in real knowledge and all discernment. To possess love is one thing, to know how to use it effectively is another. It's not always clear in every circumstance how best to love, what love looks like, and how, how, it, how it most effectively can be expressed. It's not always clear. In fact, it's often very unclear when you get into it. Have you ever heard the phrase, when helping hurts? We, I think we've all experienced when helping hurts. We've all been the helper who hurt. That's often what love achieves if it doesn't have knowledge and wisdom and, and discernment to guide it into effectiveness. People are complicated circumstances surrounding their life are tricky. And we need uh, several other gifts to help our love prosper and find its mark. Paul calls these gifts real knowledge and all discernment. What does he mean by those terms exactly? The general Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. This word is epignosis, which is a particular type of knowledge 
which, which we translate as real knowledge. But what it is is like a practical knowledge, an intuitive knowledge, knowledge of people. We might refer to it as emotional intelligence, the ability to enter into how people feel, how they perceive life and things and you. What, and to be able to enter in, to get out of yourself and put yourself in their shoes for a minute and, and perceive this circumstance and this difficulty or whatever from their perspective. That's helpful. If you're going to begin to love somebody, to be able to step out of yourself and to think as they think. It does, this is not to, say, to affirm that everybody's way of thinking and feeling is equally good or valid. No. But that's what they feel and think. And that's the starting place for loving them and helping them. You can't just take them and their feelings and their thoughts for granted, their perceptions for granted. You have to be able to enter in. So Paul prays very wisely that they would grow in this real practical knowledge of people to help them and to guide their love. He also prays for this all discernment. We need something beyond just a knowledge of people. There's also circumstances surrounding their lives. So just as, um, as knowledge of people is able to enter into their inner life, we have to have enter in wisely into the circumstances of their life. Love has to take action in order to be love. It's not enough for it to just be a feeling or desire inside us. It only begins to really be love when it's in action. But how we go about acting on our love is not, as I said earlier, always clear. And it takes real discernment to judge and weigh situations and circumstances to know how to direct our love. This word that Paul uses, that is translated for dis- as discernment here, means the ability to really size up a situation, to cut through the ethical, moral haze of circumstances and to figure out what's really important, what's most important, what's not important, sort through those things and chart a good path. All discernment, which is another word here, just means every kind of that. (laughs) Bound in every kind of that real practical knowledge of circumstances, that real wisdom that's needed. So this means that love, in order to be effective and lovely, must be possessed of good judgment. We hear a lot about, um, a lot of pushback from the world about, don't you know the Bible says not to judge? You claim to have love, but you judge. And there is a kind of judgment that God certainly condemns in the Bible, and that is self-righteous judgment. Judgment where we are looking down our noses on other people in order to build ourselves up and make ourselves feel better. That's horrid and wicked and condemned by God. But love without the ability to make judgments is love that is pretty fruitless and unable to find wise paths and often kind of bumbles into people and things and causes problems. And so in order for love to be effective, it needs to be possessed of good judgment. Now, discernment and knowledge, which Paul adds to love, by themselves without love, are monstrous and dangerous and lethal. In that wonderful chapter about love, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul points some of this out. He says, 
You know, you could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can have all these wonderful gifts, but if you don't have love, they're nothing. It's just like a noisy gong when you speak. It puffs up without love. Knowledge does. Discernment does. It's monstrous without love. But love without these gifts is directionless. It's pretty impotent. <laughs> it, causes, it's, it can also be harmful. And so we, Paul wisely puts these together for us in his prayer for the Philippians. They must be joined. If we want to really grow in love. We have to grow with good judgment of people and of situations. How to apply the love that we've been given. Most of us can probably think to times when we um, have meant well. We look back and we think, I think I meant well. But we caused harm. And so we need to grow in these, all of these ways together in order to advance and abound in true Christian agape love. Particularly this thing, this idea of entering into other people, I want to just say a word about this. This is what Jesus specializes in. Jesus' love for the world as a savior, as a mediator, is an incarnational love. He came down from heaven. He entered into our life, our experience. He, put on our, he took on our flesh. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. And he, was, he specialized because of that experience, because of his mince gifts as the son of God in this kind of epignosis Ability to enter knowledge, this real knowledge. He is the great possessor of that and the great example of that. A lot of us are pretty clueless. Pretty stuck in ourselves. Not able to see past our own way of thinking, our own prejudices, or just our own things. It's not going to cut it in, with love. That really undercuts all that love tries to be and what we're required to be. We have to be able to enter in. And Jesus shows us the way, models it for us in a profound way. Are you growing in knowledgeable and discerning love? That's the, that's, that's the first and greatest desire at the heart of this prayer. Everything else builds on that, fills it out, paints a bigger picture of it. But that's the thing, that we grow and abound in this kind of love. Paul's second desire is found in verse 10. To what has come before, Paul adds this. He says, I pray that you would grow to overflowing and perceptive, discerning love so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Another compound idea, two parts to it. The first is this. He wants, all, he wants them to abound in love so that they may approve the things that are excellent. What does he mean by that? Well, the Greek word that's translated approve here means to put something to the test by trying it to reveal what's good about it by putting it into practice, demonstrating it, 
demonstrating the goodness of something. It's not putting it to the test to see if it turns out to be good. It is, this is good, now prove that it's good by doing it. Paul wants his friends to put to the test what? The things that are excellent. That's every homeschooling, classical Christian mother's favorite words. The things that are excellent. (laughs) Excellence in my children. Excellence in our home. Excellence in my marriage. I'm kind of allergic to this word excellence. I grew up K through 12 homeschooled in this whole culture of excellence. It's become a spiritual sounding justification for pretentious cultural aspirations. This word excellence in the Christian culture. We want our Christian daughter to be excellent for Jesus. And that means she needs to postpone marriage and go into a lot of debt so she can finish her master's degree in ballet. We want excellence in church music. Excellence. God's best. And that means a pipe organ and Bach cantatas. It's certainly not a drum kit because that is not God's best. That is not excellent. Which means it's not the fruit. It's not the best fruit of Western culture, which is itself the fruit of the gospel working itself out in the culture. Why would you not want God's best, what's most excellent? This is real stuff. I've read books about it. I've been to the conferences. (laughs) These are real ideas that people buy into. But Paul's use of this term excellence, the things that are excellent, what he wants his friends to prove by doing, living them out, are moral He wants them to prove by their example and experience the moral superiority of God's ways, his way of love, the way of his law. The Greek word, which is translated here as things that are excellent, is diaphoro. And that can mean a lot of things in scripture, so it's kind of hard to pin down. It can mean, as we encountered this in Acts 27, when Paul's ship was being carried around by the winds for 14 days, it says it was carried Here and there. That's the same word. (laughs) Often it means hither and thither. But sometimes it means this, to show the superior or better way. And that's how Paul uses it here. But still, we need more help to understand exactly what he means. So we can turn to another place Paul uses this word in Romans 2, 18, and we can get some help. Here's what he says. In Romans 2.18, he's talking about the Jews. And he says about the Jews that they have this boast that they make. One that they don't carry through on, but this is their boast, and it's plausible. This is their boast. That they know, they know how to approve the things that are essential. It's the same Greek phrase. They know how to approve the things that are excellent. Having been instructed out of God's law. So when Paul uses, this is the same Greek phrase in a a sort of pretty comparable usage, and that helps us understand what he's getting at. When Paul uses that string of words, approving the things that are excellent, he means approving God's ways, the superior excellence of God's commands, particularly by walking in love. That's what Paul means. So as the true Israel of God, Paul wants the Philippians to discover for themselves and demonstrate to others the goodness of God's ways by living them out 
and an ever-increasing abundance of knowledgeable and discerning love. And he wants them to do this towards a particular aim. Paul wants all this growing in love and proving the goodness of God's ways to be aimed at a definite goal. And that's the second part of this second desire. He says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Until probably is best translated as unto or with a view toward. And the day of Christ is the goal. And that day is the day that God the Father has appointed for his exalted son Jesus to judge the world in righteousness. It's the day he is appointed and fixed from all eternity. And Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. He will return in glory and the glory of his holy angels. All those who have, have died, righteous and unrighteous, will be resurrected to this judgment of their deeds, whether good or bad. He will reward what is righteous, the righteous, and he will punish eternally in hell the wicked. He will set all things right. He will remove the curse from this world, and it will be paradise. And on that day, all the secrets of our hearts will be revealed. Nothing hidden. And all of our works will be tested for their value. Whether they're wood, hay, stubble, gold, or silver. Whether for their eternal value and, tr- and, tr- and what? Perfection. They will be weighed and tested. That's a day that Paul always kept in view for himself and for his friends. It's what he aimed at personally and encouraged others to aim at as the whole goal of their lives. And he prayed in accordance with that aim, both for himself and for his friends. He wants his friends in Philippi to make a good showing on that day. A good showing. In particular, he wants them to be sincere and blameless. On that day, and even now, as they advance toward it. This particular Greek word for sincere is a rare word in the scriptures. It's only used twice. It points to something that is well examined and proves to be of the highest quality. So, like when a jeweler holds up a gemstone to the light to see its perfections better. That's, that's this word sincerity. That it's translated as sincerity here. Testing something and finding that it has perfection. And it's a motives word. It's an interior word. Speaking of their motives. Motives matter. They matter to God. He sees and tests the heart. And on that day, and even now, in preparation for that day, Paul wants their motives to show in the light of God's judgment as perfect. And pure. He also wants them to be found blameless. So sincerity focuses on the inner motives, and blamelessness speaks to the outward actions. It's a word that means not stumbling or causing to stumble. He doesn't want them bumbling around morally in life. He wants their their life to be exemplary of obedience and of godliness 
and not causing others to stumble nor stumbling into sin themselves. He wants them growing to such perfection in the possession and the exercise of love that they stand before Christ spotless in their motives, faultless in their actions. Now, that's quite a high bar, isn't it? We fall way short of that in our life. If that kind of perfection seems just a little out of reach, it should. It is. It is way beyond you. That's why Paul is praying for this to happen, appealing to the all-powerful God to produce these things in the life of his friends. And yet it would still seem pretty overwhelming and kind of hopeless if, God, if Paul had left off his prayer there and not concluded the way he did. Even though you can say to yourself, well, yeah, it's a prayer to God who has power to do these things. If that's where he built up to the day of Christ and perfection, I think I would leave pretty hopeless. He adds more. And it shows that he is grounding all of these bodacious, amazing hopes for his friends in the power and the purposes of God. Here's his third desire in verse 11. Paul concludes his chain of prayerful desires this way. He prays that all of the above would come about as evidence of something. As evidence, verse 11, of having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a great way to end (laughs) this prayer. This agape love that Paul wants them to abound in with real knowledge and all discernment by which he desires them in walking in it, to demonstrate the superior excellence of God's ways and prove themselves to be pure in heart and faultless in conduct in view of the surpassing glory of the day of Christ, Paul sees as possible only by Christ's own power and intention to bring those things about in the life of his children. That's what Paul is appealing to as he prays. God's power and his interest in granting these very things for which Paul is asking. Specifically, Paul appeals to two things that he knows God takes special interest and delight in. Fruitfulness in his children and his own glory. Paul appeals to these things in this prayer. He wants them to to grow in love and advance in love to the point of perfection, blamelessness, as evidence of having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. God loves fruit. (laughs) He loves fruitfulness. This is evident on every page of the scriptures. If you just think of Genesis 1 and the fruitfulness of creation, that God made it this way. He delights in fruit. This is why God made fruitfulness the goal of the Christian life. He says in John 15, 8, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit 
and so prove to be my disciples. This is the goal of the Christian life, bearing fruit for God. The Christian life, life in Christ Jesus, is the restoration by God of all the things that we lost in the fall of Adam into sin. Everything that was lost to us, the life of God, the joy of God, the free, the fecundity of God, the fruitfulness of God is completely lost to us in Adam who sinned and plunged us all into sin and alienation from God and the life of God. The life of Christ, the life of the Christian, the life of the regeneration is a life of restoring to us, not theoretically, but even actually the fruitfulness that God originally intended. We can't share in the life of God or the fruit that comes from it apart from union with Jesus. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, the life-giving trunk. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All of this comes through union with Jesus Christ. The principle of fruit, of what is restored in us, lost and fallen with the image of God corrupted in us, restored to us in Jesus Christ. The principal fruit of that is agape love. That's the first evidence that God is doing that work of restoration in our lives. It is the irreducible minimum of all obedience and the fruit of faith that's most pleasing to God. And Paul is appealing to God's own love for those things and his intention to produce it in the life of his children, as he prays for these, this kind of overflowing, abundant perfection to be given and granted to them. Paul appeals to God's own delight and fruitfulness in confident hope that God will grant his friends in Christ a superabundance of that, of that which he please, what pleases him most to give and to produce. Paul also appeals to God's love of his own glory. He says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. God is all about his glory. He, that is his great business is to glorify himself and to have all creation look at him in praise and wonder and amazement. For his power and his works. He is magnifying himself in glory. That is his great purpose. God is jealous for his glory. He says he will not share it with any other. And we fall woefully short in ourselves of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The great way that God is glorifying himself. He's glorifying himself in a lot of ways constantly. He's going to glorify himself in the destruction of the wicked. But God is doing more than that. He's also blowing angels' minds by taking wicked sinners like you and me and saving us from our sins and actually producing the fruit of righteousness in our lives. 
And when it comes to the day of judgment, and we stand in judgment before the Lord, we will stand on the basis and the merits of Jesus Christ and his perfection. But lo and behold, there will be a whole lot of wonderful things that the Lord produced in us by his spirit, by his own mighty power, to his glory and praise and the amazement of everyone. This is his great purpose for advancing his glory. He's doing all this with an eye to that great day when all the secrets are revealed and all the stories are told, good and bad. The good story in his children is going to be told. And it's going to be a story of this. Look what I did by the power of my son. Look what I did. Satan was not better than me. He could not rob me of what was my due. I have given it to myself in that child of mine. I took what Satan corrupted and destroyed and twisted for evil. And I produced a glorious plant of godliness out of that hard ground through the influence, the work of my son Jesus. That's how God is glorifying himself and intends to glorify himself in you and me. And Paul is appealing to God's own love of his glory and that project of advancing it. God's own love of that and intention to do that as he prays to God on behalf of his friends. So there's some lessons in this for us for how we can pray. Paul grounds his desires for his friends in what he knows God delights in. He appeals to God's love of fruit and God's love of his own glory. And that's not like rabbit's foot manipulation of God. You've gone to the oriental restaurants and you've seen the little God and the token food put before them so that they can kind of get from the God what they want. That's not what this is. This is a real appeal to a real person who has real goals and desires and intentions, who has made those intentions and desires known in his word and invites us to come to him and make appeals on the basis of his revelation and of his own intentions and his own character. And that's what Paul does. He looks to what God is up to and doing and loves and delights in. And he says, okay, God, I have a big favor to ask. <laughs> Would you do those things in my friends over here? Things that I know you want to do. Things that I know that advance the things that you delight in and love most. Would you please grant to my friends those things? That's how Paul makes his appeal. It's not manipulation. It's a humble and reverent recognition of what God is like and what he's up to. And it functions, it's a function of conforming our desires according to God's revealed will. There's also a lesson in this for how we should pray for one another. This is a very positive prayer. 
You see that? It's a very positive prayer. How do we pray normally for each other? Have you ever heard of the expression, fair weather friends? A fair weather friend is somebody's only there when things are good. But as soon as things get bad, they're gone. They're out of there. Paul's not a fair weather friend. The Philippians aren't fair weather friends. But we tend to be foul weather prayers. We only show up in prayer when things are real bad in my life. There's a crisis. Oh, we better pray. And it's good and right to respond to trouble in prayer. That's often how God drives us to do what we should do all the time, is for giving us trouble. But Paul is not in crisis. These are very positive, optimistic, hopeful prayers for his friends that he wants to see God do for them. And he's thinking about it often, frequently, as we saw last week. Paul has a big gospel vision for his friends, for their spiritual progress, and he prays for them regularly and accordingly. And we need a similar vision for each other, for our children, for our spouse, for this church, for our friends in Christ. And we need to pray according to that vision. So moms and dads, husbands, wives, friends, churchmen, this is a great example that Paul has given us for how we should pray for each other. Things that are appropriate to pray at all times for each other, particularly that we would abound in love to, to great advancement and even to perfection. This is also a window into the desires that we should have for ourselves and for one another. Paul's prayers here are focused on spiritual needs and spiritual fruit. What do we normally ask for prayer for and find ourselves praying for in others? Mostly practical things. Health concerns, job concerns, car concerns, test-taking concerns, concerns, practical things. Mostly the currency of our prayers. Next time you're at home group or at the dinner table or at Bible study, or wherever prayer requests are solicited, try opening up a spiritual need and asking people to pray for you about that. Those are the most important needs of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. It's good and right that we pray for healing. And for car repairs, and for employment needs, and for trouble sleeping, and all of those things. It's not unimportant to God. Aren't you more important than many, than little sparrows? And, um, and all of that. There's lots, God cares about our day-to-day life and existence very much. It's important to you. It should be important to all of us. But when you stand before God on the day of Christ Jesus... What's going to be important? That you got that job? That you had a season of really good sleep? What's most important is going to be the evidence of his work in you. On display for his glory. 
And we, out of love for him, should want to be a great display. As great a display as we can achieve with his help and with the prayers that we offer for that and then solicit and invite from others for us. Paul's number one concern for his friends was abounding growth in the spiritual fruit of love. That's the principal thing. That is the most important thing to God. It's the summary of all obedience. It's the first fruits of his spirit. Maybe we should start praying for one another along these lines and inviting prayers from others that we would grow and abound in godliness and in love. That was Paul's utmost desire and concern for his friends, and it should be our desire for ourselves and for one another. I'm not saying that all of our prayer requests have to be and sound super spiritual. Spiritual fruit, spiritual growth and love, often those things connect to real practical places in our lives, okay? So don't just start going all spiritual in your lingo. Paul's praying big prayer for a lot of people, a whole group of people. And so he's very general. Don't hesitate to be specific in your desire. I want to grow in love here. I saw a wonderful example of this this morning on Facebook. Facebook is good for something once in a while. I saw a Christian financial planner inviting prayers from people. Now, you could say this is marketing on his part, but there was something sweet about it. He said, later today, I'm going to help a lady, an older woman, um, Christian lady, figure out her, her uh, 401k stuff. Would you pray that I'd be a good listener and really helpful to her? That's a prayer for growth and love in a particular situation. Help me, God, to be effective in my desire to love and help this woman and inviting other people to pray for him. Very spiritual prayer and good. When we pray, when we invite prayers for ourselves, let's not take our eye off the ball of what our real need is, what God is really desiring for us. The goal, the ultimate aim and goal of our life, which is to be pleasing to him and to evidence the fruit of his great work through his son and spirit in our lives on the day of judgment. And let's pray for those things, that we grow and abound in them unto the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we do pray that you would help us to grow in the very ways that Paul here is praying for his friends to grow, that we would, lo- we would abound more and more in love that has real knowledge and all discernment, that we would do this all with a view to the day of Christ Jesus when all of your work in us will be on display. And we will stand in humble amazement that you could do that in us. Knowing our rebellion and our pride and sin. And I do pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in each one of us. That we would 
that we would prove by testing the goodness of your ways and that the goodness of your ways would be on display in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would not attempt to accomplish these things in our own power or strength, but that this would be the true fruit of union with Jesus Christ, that you produce more and more to overflowing in our lives. Would you produce good fruit in us? We know you love it, and we know it glorifies you. May our lives be to your glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.